I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. A Bible tell me story? what you think about Bible story. This is this is Jordan Peterson's I love your Bible, Bible story. Stories. Okay, this is a Bible story. They will take you. Well, look, yeah. I've known at least 200 people who've been canceled. Like I have a very wide network of canceled people. 20 years ago, something like that, I bought like 100 pieces of lingerie for Whoa, my life. Whoa, 100? Yeah, yeah. yeah, a whole bunch, like a boatload. Yeah. What a baller. Yeah. G'day, welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is a show where we deep dive into the conversations happening right now, and we try to figure out who's talking sense and who is talking nonsense. I am Jack Treadwell, and today, as you will no doubt have already surmised because you've read the title, we're going to be covering Jordan Peterson. And I can tell you we've got a hell of an episode on the cards, although I haven't actually recorded it yet. I'm in the process now, so no guarantees. But the content, at the very least, is... Good. We've got some good clips lined up. Specifically, these come from a couple of recent interviews that Jordan has given, which I have forced myself to endure. So one of which was an interview he did on Russell Brand's podcast, and another one was done with Bill Maher on Bill Maher's Club Random podcast. So we've got plenty of content to cover. I'll also be occasionally drawing from some other interviews that he has done over the years just to supplement certain points that I'm trying to make. But those are the two focal points, I suppose, around which the podcast is going to pivot. So what are we going to be covering exactly? Well, we're going to try to get to the bottom of Jordan Peterson, but hopefully we can draw some salutary lessons from the guy that can be applied more broadly than just to Jordan. Although some of what we're going to be covering is fairly idiosyncratic Peterson. So it's going to be a mixed bag. But at the very least, it is, I hope, going to be entertaining and hopefully edifying. So for a bit of an overview of what we're going to be covering, I'm going to start with some of Jordan's epistemic habits, his habits of reasoning, which are not super flash. And then I'm going to talk about some of his core worldviews, which are pretty key to understanding what the hell he's going on about a lot of the time. And then we're going to unwind with some more amusing clips from Bill Maher's podcast specifically. So make sure you stick around for that. But diving right in. So Jordan Peterson, is he a paragon of reasoning? Can you bet on him to reason his way to the right view? Well, I think the answer isn't actually a clear-cut yes or no. It sort of depends, for one thing, on what version of Jordan Peterson you have in a given moment, because he comes in many flavors, this guy. So there's the kind of buttoned-up, study-citing psychology professor who is generally pretty epistemically rigorous, I would say, or scrupulous. Um, But then there's the political rabble-rouser Jordan Peterson, and he's slightly less scrupulous, but... Not as bad, I don't think, as the kind of the messianical biblical preacher Jordan Peterson, who abandons all pretense of epistemic rigor. Actually, no, he does. He maintains a pretense of it, but uh, he certainly lacks it. This is the Jordan who recites biblical narratives and occasionally Disney narratives with the most like reverential and solemn tones. He he takes them very seriously and. I think when he's doing this, and also when he's reasoning in other domains, he commits a particular reasoning sin, I suppose we could say. And I think this is like a fairly core issue with some of Jordan's epistemic or reasoning practices. 
And so what this is, is basically an, he appeals to overly abstract, overly metaphorical conceptual models and concepts. So what exactly is the problem with this, with this reasoning in an overly abstract way? Well, okay, so first of all, roughly speaking, a mental model or like a conceptual model is a system of concepts that maps onto some phenomenon or like something concrete in the world. It's kind of like a copy of that thing in your brain that lets you reason about it and understand it. And ideally, it's going to be a fairly specific representation of the thing that you're trying to understand. But occasionally it can be overly metaphorical and too abstract to really properly fit the thing. And so I think this is what Jordan does a lot of the time. So consider two different models of, let's say, the game of chess. So one's going to be a good one and one's going to be a Jordan Peterson-esque one. So the good one is going to be like specific. It's going to you know, comprise of all of the rules of the game, the various pieces and how they can move. And ultimately, you can use this model to you know, play the game, understand the game. You can make inferences about what kind of moves are going to be good and so on. But now consider an alternative model, one that's way more metaphorical and abstract that Jordan Peterson might try to give you. So suppose he says that what the game of chess really is, is a struggle between the archetypal hero, that's one player, let's say that's you, and the dragon, the other player. And your goal is to liberate the treasure, uh, which is victory, or the spoils of victory. And that's chess. Okay, so that's a fairly silly example, and perhaps not the way that Jordan would actually characterize chess. But it is kind of the, the spirit of how Jordan talks about a lot of things. So one question to ask is, like, why? What is the appeal of this way of thinking? And I think there's at least two major reasons so first of all, it's not obviously inaccurate, right? Like you can kind of squint your eyes and see how that metaphorical idea of hero versus dragon could apply to the game of chess, if you're feeling a bit fanciful, perhaps. So it's difficult to show that they're wrong in a strict sense. But the second reason, and this is more important, I think, is that they can have an air of like profundity and, and depth to them. Because for one thing, they're often couched in this kind of metaphorical and poetic language. So they're kind of evocative. They're laden with all sorts of emotional associations. And so for this reason, they're compelling. But I think even more importantly, people are so beguiled by this like very abstract way of speaking about things and thinking about things because of the fact that since they're such loose-fitting concepts, they can be applied to like everything. So for example, you might have heard of his chaos versus order model of things, which he applies uh, overzealously, I would say. He applies it to like everything, whether it's your kind of individual psychology, your individual emotions, they can be in a state of chaos or order, or you could apply it to your, your external environment, you could apply it to the political environment. Pretty much anything because in virtue of the fact that these concepts are just so abstract and so this breadth of application seems to imply like a depth and profundity to the concept and i think this is just entirely illusory because the models are just so loose fitting and they don't apply to anything particularly well they don't actually illuminate anything so going forward i'll refer to these as loose fitting models or loose fitting concepts just so i have a way of referring to it but here's a clip of Jordan Peterson talking about this phenomenon. From This is from the Joe Rogan podcast, one that he did years back alongside Brett Weinstein. The stories are um, erroneous in detail and right in pattern. 
So, for example, there's an idea that one of the things that the mythological hero does is stand up against the tyranny of the state. Now, you don't have to specify the nature of the tyranny of the state in order for that to be a truth that's applicable across different contexts. And I would say what's happened with the great religious myths is that they've, they operate at a level of abstraction such that the, the abstract entities are applicable in every single environment. Yeah, so he, the thing he doesn't seem to realize is that and because they're so abstract and non-specific, they're not particularly helpful. So they apply to a lot of things, but they don't illuminate those things. I suppose like one thing we can say, one positive thing we can say about them, at least, uh, that I can discern, is that maybe they could be, maybe they have some utility in providing a bit of motivational impetus, right? So like if you're, I don't know, maybe you're trying to get some work done, you're feeling lazy. If you frame that as a heroic struggle against a dragon, like maybe that provides a bit of motivation for you. I don't know. But I think Jordan Peterson wants them to do more than just that. He wants them to be like widely applicable truths that just capture the nature of the world or something. But he also seems to wield them for like instrumental political reasons too. So here's an example from the start of the Russell Brand interview that he recently did in which he's going to use these loose-fitting models to disparage his political opponents, essentially. Well, the alternative to unity is conflict. Now, unity can become so tight that it turns into tyranny, and obviously that's not acceptable. But the the problem with the continual emphasis on diversity that we hear is that it isn't accompanied by the obvious fact that if people aren't united by a vision, let's say, which is how you unite people properly, then they're divided, and divided people can't cooperate or compete peacefully, and they they their interests run afoul of one another. Now, what's happening on the unity front, as far as I can tell, is that there is a clamor for unity, particularly on the side of the people who are fear-mongering with the apocalypse, and they're trying to compel a unity with terror. And to me, that's a hallmark of tyranny. I think tyrants always use fear to compel unity. Okay, so that was fairly long-winded. Um, but there's a couple of things I want to extract from that. So he's got this loose-fitting model, right? This very abstract and metaphorical model about unity versus conflict. The idea is that too much unity is tyrannical, he said, and presumably too much conflict is chaotic or something. And so you want to like take the middle path between those two things. So this is his, this cute little model that he's got. And what he's going to do with it is like drape it over the, these real-world phenomena. So specifically, he mentioned apocalypse mongers, and I presume that refers to like global warming advocates or like people who, you know, rightfully worry about global warming. So the reality is this is quite a complex, multifaceted situation, right? You've got all these various currents pushing in certain directions. You've got stuff that's happening just on the social level. You've got stuff that's happening in the media, uh, all the government policies and maneuverings towards combating global warming. But all of this, according to Jordan's model, can be distilled down to what he's calling compelled unity. And well, if you look at his little model there, what is what is too much unity? That's tyranny. So what his little model has let him do is beat us over the head with it and label us as tyrannical, label anybody who's pushing the global warming idea 
as attempting to compel unity and thereby qualify as tyrannical. Okay, so as we go forward, we're going to see more of this like loose-fitting modeling from Jordan. But for now, I'll play another clip. This is a continuation from the previous one where he tries to address another part of Russell's question, which was something to the effect of, why are you such a divisive figure? You know, when you said, when you posed that question that I'm a divisive figure, but I actually don't think that's true, Russell. Like, I'm a divisive figure online, but it doesn't seem to be the case in the actual world because all the interactions I have with people in my actual life in public are they're uniformly highly positive and so i don't think the online world is a very accurate simulacrum of the real world okay interesting idea jordan so i guess i guess the the internet is a sort of alternate reality that's kind of totally detached from the real world where opinions that people hold on the internet are not reflections of the opinions they hold in the real world or or maybe it's the case that if somebody expresses a particular opinion online, then maybe they do actually hold that opinion. Uh, and maybe that's why they're expressing it on the internet. And maybe it's the case that uh, Jordan's encounters in real life lead to a bit of a, a sampling bias. So for example, you know, overwhelmingly the people that approach Jordan are going to be mega fans, right? They're going to be people looking for an autograph or for a selfie with him or to, I don't know, seek some personal advice. And conversely, the people who dislike Jordan, I don't think are going to be tempted to go up and insult him to his face because in general, people are agreeable in person. People don't like confrontation. And so that is why you're not going to have these people going up to Jordan. Even uh, if, you know, they're forced into a confrontation with Jordan or forced into, you know, some kind of situation where they have to interact with them, people are just going to be agreeable. That's what people do. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> you can kind of think of Jordan as like that annoying coworker that nobody really likes. And, uh, you know, everybody's civil to him, to his face, but um, they might say disparaging things elsewhere. But yeah, you know, it's funny how a psychology professor doesn't seem to understand this feature of human psychology that they people in general don't like to don't like confrontations. So they're going to stay the hell away from you. And that, I suppose, if you're not careful in your reasoning, could lead you to the conclusion that Jordan came to, namely that he's not actually divisive in the real world. So anyway, we'll move on. So Jordan now goes on to discuss the Internet in some more detail. And as we're going to start to see, he'll, he'll start dropping hints about psychopaths and, and narcissists and all of these horrible people, horrible types of person. And as we're going to see, these kind of people figure into his thinking about a lot of things. So here's the first clip. The whole net and our new means of communication, it's a whole new sensory and social system. And there's no reason to assume that it's actually providing a valid representation of the actual world, especially because it also seems to be highly gameable by narcissists and psychopaths. And that's not good. That's not good. No, indeed, Jordan, that is not good. So that was the first hint, but we'll go on. Here's another clip. And we have no idea if the internet communication system we set up is actually a playable game. We have no idea. Like, look, already we do know some things. About 35% of internet traffic is pornographic. And if you don't think that that's under the control of psychopathic criminals, you're a fool. Okay, I guess I'm a fool then because I've got no idea what he's talking about. All right, but there's a few things that I want to extract out of that little clip. So first of all, 
there's that claim that he made that 35% of internet traffic is pornographic. Now, this is something, this reminded me of uh, an old claim that I used to hear that uh, I think people used to say 70% of the internet is porn. And I guess at the time I kind of accepted it, but recently, like on reflection, it's, that's just obviously not true. Like even a number like 35%, that's more than a third of internet traffic. So like, think about your own internet use. I'm pretty sure a third of my time on the internet is not spent on pornography, and I don't imagine that's typical of anyone. I mean, if that is the case, that overall it's 35%, then there must be some absolute porn fiends out there who are just like, that's all they do. And there's got to be a lot of them, I think, to skew those numbers up that high. Um, but anyway, the common sense picture aside, I looked this up and I could I found a number of citations of 30%, not 35%. Uh, so Jordan might have misremembered that. <clears throat> Actually, that's, a, that's something we're going to see a little bit of too. Jordan, like totally misremembering these really small details. We'll see another example of that later. But so anyway, the 30% number, turns out that that is not very reliable. There was an article, uh, BBC did an article where they kind of assessed it, or they had some experts assessing those numbers, and no, it's it's not nearly that high. There was some um, fudging of the numbers. I forget the details, but yeah, but I mean, that aside, like just common sense should tell you that people aren't devoting more than a third of their time to porn. Like just consider the average person using the internet. They're scrolling TikTok, Twitter, whatever. You know, it's not pornographic. Okay, but anyway, back to the point about psychopaths. So the idea is that pornography is under the control of psychopaths somehow. I'm not quite sure what that means. Maybe he's elaborated on that point elsewhere, but he doesn't in this interview. But anyway, this is like one example of what the psychopaths are doing. According to Jordan Peterson, not only are they controlling porn, they're running society off its rails in all sorts of ways. So we're going to see specific examples of that. So one thing to point out is that Jordan uses a bunch of terms interchangeably. So he, he might refer to them as psychopaths or as narcissists or as dark tetrad types, which kind of lumps together all of these like psycho psychopathy and narcissism and so on. Um, he might refer to them as parasites or predators or parasitic predators. But whenever he uses these terms, you should just think like villain. These are the these are the villains in a kind of Manichaean worldview that he has, where it's like good versus evil. You've got the good guys. That's just normal folks. That's you and me. That's Jordan. And then you got the bad guys, the villains, the narcissists, the psychopaths. So what else are they responsible for? In Jordan's eyes, this next clip is going to show that he thinks they are responsible for all of the online trolling he encounters online. I imagine personally too. Then there's all the online trolls who do nothing but cause trouble and sow divisiveness in their cowardly manner and their LOL, with their LOL culture, trying to do nothing but cause trouble. And we know from the psychological research that those people are much likely to have dark tetrad characteristics. They're Machiavellian, narcissistic, psychopathic, and because that wasn't good enough, sadistic. All right, so I'm not going to fact check the claim that these trolls are more likely to exhibit these certain personality traits. That could be the case, but it can still be true, and I'm fairly confident it is true, that most people making the kinds of LOL comments he's talking about are just psychologically normal people, right? And that's because A, most people on the internet, just in general, are psychologically normal, and B, Normal people like to poke fun at things too. Uh, and especially when, you know, 
somebody makes himself such an irresistible target of mockery. Like, of course, you're going to get all sorts of normal people piling on. So I think this is a kind of self-protective rationalization, which Jordan can use to kind of write off anybody who's criticizing him or trolling him as a psychopath. No need to pay attention to those. Okay, so that's another thing that the psychopaths are responsible for, namely Jordan Peterson's personal trolling online. Um, what, what else? Turns out, according to Peterson, they are actually responsible for the culture war. So here's a clip from Bill Maher's show in which he talks about that. The culture war is actually not a political battle at all. That the political battle is a facade for the actual battle. Okay, so at this point in the interview, there's a digression in which he describes the dark tetrad personality uh, type, and then he resumes this line of thought. And there's a very high correlation between the dark tetrad personality traits and left-wing authoritarianism. So, so, so that's why I think it's not fundamentally well, political, is that what's happening is that there's a small minority of people who are very manipulative, who use compassion as a camouflage, and then people who are generally and genuinely uh, compassionate, they can be manipulated easily. And so, and that's not, that's why you're seeing, that's part of the reason you're seeing this deviation, deviation from more classical liberalism. There's no better camouflage for someone who's truly dark right. than compassion. Right. right, right, right. Hmm, that is certainly a thought-provoking hypothesis. All right, so left-wing authoritarianism, by which I guess he just means everything disagreeable that seems to come from the left wing, that's all caused by psychopaths, ultimately. And so the political battle, he said, is a facade for the actual battle, which I suppose must mean the battle between the dark tetrad types and the rest of us, okay? I'm not sure whose facade it is. Like, is it the psychopaths that are pretending that it's a political battle when really they're trying to wage a war against the rest of us? Um, he said, some, what was it? He said that there's no better camouflage than compassion. So the, the psychopaths are hiding behind compassion in order to wage a war against the rest of us, which they want to disguise as a political battle. Well, I'll be honest, it's probably not for me, that particular theory. I think I'll stick to a more grounded idea of what's going on politically. But yeah, so it's it's clear that Jordan, this is a fairly core part of his thinking now, that there is this like battle between the psychopathic types and the rest of us. And now I'll show some clips which reveal that he thinks of this as a very ancient and deep struggle between parasites and hosts. So here we're switching back to the interview with Russell Brand. So this clip is going to show Jordan Peterson describing the ancient roots of this struggle between the dark tetrad types and the rest. And he's going to frame it as a struggle between parasites and hosts. So be prepared for some biology and evolutionary theory here. The biological struggle is an arms race between parasites and hosts and always has been. And it's such a profound race that that's why sex evolved. Because there are creatures that replicate, even some lizards, that can replicate essentially by cloning themselves. So they produce identical duplicates of themselves. But what happens is the parasites can optimize for their physiology and take them out. So sex mixes genes. Okay, so the reason I'm saying that is because the parasite problem is so deep and so profound that sex itself evolved as the method of replication to deal with it. Now, the online communication systems 
facilitate the parasites. And, the, and you don't need that many of them to take, to take a society down, you know, like the real radical types who would rather dance around in the chaos and who are in it only for their immediate self-gratification. They're a very small percentage of the population. Clinical data indicates about 3%. But the problem with that is that if they have free reign, they can take everything down. All right, so there's a few things to point out here. So first of all, this is a, a good example of how he weaves like pretty scientifically respectable ideas into his otherwise dubious reasoning. So the idea that parasites created a selection pressure which led to the evolution of sexual reproduction is at the very least a respectable idea, like it's well founded, I think. I don't have the expertise to sign off on it totally, but at least it comes from respectable corners of science. So he takes this respectable idea and then he extrapolates from it in the most dubious way. And specifically, it's through the use of more of these loose fitting models, right? So he's got this idea of parasites versus hosts which he's kind of made into a more metaphorical notion. So he's he's detached it from the grounded biological context and he's, he's using these terms metaphorically now. And so now he can apply them to this struggle between psychopaths and the rest of us. And in this way, he can kind of draw the conclusion that the trolls on his Twitter feed are <laughs> really an extension of ancient parasites who were attacking, you know, biological hosts. So yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in that particular clip, I think. So there's his use of loose fitting models or kind of metaphorical concepts to link together things in a very dubious way. There's a kind of allusion to personal grievances he has. You know, he's trying to link the parasite problem to trolling online, which I suppose is something he frequently encounters. And there's his Manichaean worldview of good versus evil parasites versus hosts, which probably stems in part from his deep religiosity, I would say. So here we're going to segue into speaking about his religious worldview, um, because there were some interesting parts in this conversation he had with Russell Brand that kind of clarified some things for me about his religious worldview. So one thing that you can't possibly miss if you've consumed enough Peterson content is that he brandishes religious stories exuberantly. He he's, uses them all the time to kind of make arguments, whether that's like political arguments or psychological arguments or sociological ones, whatever. Always there's a, a religious story for it. And initially I kind of wondered what, you know, references to biblical stories or Pinocchio were doing in the context of like a political discussion. But now I realize that I think Jordan uses kind of biblical stories the same way scientists use references to studies. That is, he doesn't just use them to try to illustrate his point, but he actually uses it to corroborate his point. And that is because he views the Bible as the ultimate source of truth. So to him, it's like the ultimate citations, the ultimate reference to back up a point that he's making. So how does he justify doing this? Uh, especially because as he acknowledges, the Bible doesn't contain the kinds of factual propositional truths that we ordinarily appeal to, right, when making arguments. Rather, they contain stories which, can, which uh, encode kind of archetypes or wisdoms, I suppose, that, that serve, as he claims, as kind of templates for behavior. But he really wants these to be like foundational, fundamental. He really wants them to have the kind of gravitas that we normally associate with factual truths. So 
what you'll see him do is kind of relegate the idea of factual truths and really elevate the notion of narratives as being the carriers of truth. Um, and in particular, biblical narratives. So in this interview, he does, there's a couple of steps to his uh, argument here, which he doesn't make explicit, but this, but it's certainly what he's trying to do. So the first step is for him to show that stories or narratives are fundamental to how we understand the world. So here's the f first clip of that. The structure through which we look at the world is a story. If you describe the structure through which we look at the world, that's what a story is. That's why we value stories, because we need to know how to look at the world. So this, the empiricists and the rationalists were wrong. We cannot derive a picture of the world through mere reference to the facts, because there's one fact per phenomenon, and there's too many phenomena. We're awash in them. You have to, hierarch you have to arrange them hierarchically. That's what a story is. And once you know that, the next question obviously is, well, what's the correct story? Okay, so his references to empiricism and rationalism being wrong, I think, are his way of like subtly disparaging the idea of factual or propositional truths. And as he said, there's one fact per phenomenon. I guess the implication is that we can't understand the world as a just list of disconnected facts. Rather, they need to be organized into this hierarchical structure, as he says. But he interprets that as implying that, in actual fact, we apprehend the world via narratives. And so there's some truth to what he's saying, right? It is the case that the brain, you know, we don't conceptualize the world as a list of disjointed facts. But nobody actually believes that's the case. You know, I was just talking about conceptual models earlier. People talk about conceptual frameworks. And these things can have the kind of complex and hierarchical structure that Jordan Peterson is talking about. And I suspect that Jordan wouldn't actually disagree with that. But the thing he's doing here is he's applying the term narrative, which is sufficiently like metaphorical and loose, which on the one hand lets him maintain the truth of what he's saying in the same way that, you know, uh, a chess game can be thought of as a battle between a hero and, and a dragon, not technically inaccurate. But what it lets him do is connect the idea directly to the Bible and the narratives contained within it. But anyway, here he is continuing. He's going to show in this next clip just how deep he thinks this notion of narratives runs in the human mind. And I've talked to many neuroscientists. Um, what's his name now? Uh, he's the most cited neuroscientist in the world. I asked him specifically, his name will come to me, whether or not object perception was a micro-narrative. And he said, necessarily, yes. You think about that. Every object we see is a prop in a play. At the perceptual level, that shatters empiricism. You don't see facts and objects and attribute to the meaning. You see props in a play. And the question is, well, what play are you playing? What part are you playing? There's no detaching perception from the underlying narrative. It's not technically possible. Okay, so again, yeah, I think maybe what he could be driving at is the need for conceptual models rather than disjointed facts. Um, that's perfectly legitimate. But what he's doing here is, again, he's ascending to this like metaphorical and abstract level where he's talking about narratives, right? So his notion of narratives, he'd probably agree, is maps onto what I'm talking about as like conceptual models. But the fact that he's using this term narrative, this lets him link this idea to the Bible and like biblical narratives. So he's again, he's doing one of these extrapolations, which can only be done in virtue of this like metaphorical use of terms, in this case, narrative. 
So it's the same trick once again. Okay, so that was the first step in his argument. He's, he's tried to show that narratives are fundamental, but now he needs to show that biblical narratives in particular uh, can be held up as uh, especially true or fundamental or foundational. So how exactly is he going to manage that? Well, he's going to appeal to the notion of memes in the Richard Dawkins sense of the word. So the lead into this discussion comes from uh, Russell and Jordan talking about Richard Dawkins. So here's the first clip. See, he's such an interesting person because his notion of meme is right on the threshold of the notion of archetype. There, if he would have pursued that, he would have entered the Jungian world. What a complete and utter tragedy for Dawkins to think that he was only like inches away from entering the Jungian world. Ah, how different the trajectory of his career might have been if he'd just gone that little bit further. So anyway, why is he? Why is Jordan comparing memes to archetypes? Well, I'll let him make the case in this next clip. And I would say that the memes that have guided us, let's say the memes that are part of the biblical tradition that have lasted for at least thousands and likely tens of thousands of years, are the memes that have been selected by two processes of reproduction, right? The transmission of information, so the propagation of information as reproduction, but that have also facilitated genuine reproduction itself successful memes have emerged as a consequence of Darwinian competition. And so why would you not say, then they're adapted to the world, then they're microcosms of the world. Dawkins himself said that an adapted organism, he said this explicitly in a brilliant paper, an adapted organism must be a microcosm of the world. So how in the world can you not derive the conclusion that what we live in is best construed as a story? Okay, so the idea is that because the stories in the Bible have been around so long, they must have been useful, and because they're useful, they must be true. So roughly, there's arguments, something like that. And there is something to be said about this meme idea and the survival of certain ideas. One problem with Jordan's claim here, though, is that the archetypes, the stories from the Bible, they have this quality of being loose-fitting. And so that they don't really apply too specifically to any phenomenon. So it's difficult to see how they would actually be particularly useful. Um, also, there are some pretty good arguments made against this idea of biblical stories being adaptive. Uh, Richard Dawkins himself has argued quite stridently, I think, in this vein. He wrote a book years ago called Viruses of the Mind, in which he makes this case. But there's another pretty fundamental problem with this idea that biblical stories are useful memes, uh, which is a problem that Jordan Peterson himself has acknowledged, which is roughly that you can interpret the Bible in any of an infinite number of ways. So how do you know which one is the correct one? So here's another clip from the Joe Rogan episode that Jordan did, which I clipped earlier in which Jordan's going to make this case and he's going to associate the argument with postmodernists specifically and then give his rebuttal to it. And that's why the postmodernists say, well, you can't agree on a canonical interpretation of a great piece of literature because the number of potential interpretations are infinite. And so then they say, well, why should we settle on any one interpretation then? Why should we privilege one over another? And then they say, well, that's all power games. And so that's, a, you, you got to take that seriously. But what they missed, and this is a big deal, it's a big deal, I think, is this idea of, of ethical constraint. It's like, yes, there's a landscape of potentially infinite interpretations, but hardly any of them will work in the real world. And hardly any of them will work in the real world in a way that doesn't get you killed by other people or doom you because of your own stupidity to failure across time. And so the landscape of interpretation is almost infinite. 
But the landscape of applicable interpretation, functional interpretation, is unbelievably constrained. So what do you think? Does his argument there dispose of that objection? Uh, no, I don't think so. So we can grant his point that some interpretations will in fact turn out to be, in the fullness of time, more useful than others when actually applied. But Jordan is extracting his own interpretations of the Bible now, right? And somebody else could come up with a different interpretation now. So he's not actually running the test to see if his interpretation is more useful than somebody else's. And in fact, even in this interview, we see an example of exactly this kind of phenomenon where Jordan comes to a different interpretation of a particular Bible passage than Russell Brand. So Jordan argues that the Cain and Abel story uh, is a metaphor for two possible responses to adversity. So you can either dust yourself off and try again like Abel, or you can shake your fists at the world and become bitter and resentful like Cain. And then later on, Russell Brand injects his own interpretation of the story as he kind of wonders aloud whether this Cain and Abel dichotomy could reflect the struggle between uh, like individualism and transcendent spiritualism or something along those lines. And so it's just painfully obvious what's happening here. Both of them are bringing their own preconceptions to the party and because what they're extracting is this kind of loose-fitting model, it can be made to fit with whatever ideas they already have in mind. So ultimately, they're just going to apply whatever interpretation resonates with their aesthetic the most. It's basically one of those Rorschach inkblot tests where each of them is just seeing whatever image most appeals to them, basically. So... Anyway, we're going to leave Russell Brand behind now and we'll focus the rest of the episode on the Bill Maher interview. So it's going to be a bit lighter from here on out. We can sort of unwind with uh, some of the amusements that arose in this podcast. So the first thing we're going to look at is a what was a somewhat awkward but very amusing uh, portion of the podcast where Bill and Jordan kind of clashed on religion. So for anyone that doesn't know, Bill Maher is this kind of militant atheist type. He was part of that whole like atheistic revolution, I guess you could say, with Sam Harris and others. And at least from what little I've seen of Bill, he does seem to speak pretty reasonably on the subject. He makes some incisive arguments. But in this interview with Jordan, he seems not to have been aware of Jordan's religious leanings and... I suppose that's like typical of a casual Jordan Peterson observer who's only really seen as like political hot takes, I guess. So listen to this clip and just note how Bill kind of casually insults people who take the Bible seriously and seems to take for granted that uh, the fact that Jordan will agree with him. You were talking about Sodom and Gomorrah yeah. earlier. That was you, right? It was. It was me. <laughs> <laughs> it was Marion Williamson. Okay. So I was there when we were making Religious. That was like yeah. one of the places. And this is the one with Lot's wife. Yeah. So I, I feel like I studied this and I didn't remember these like intricate permutations there yeah. where he, he, God was bargained down to 10 people. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually it, why they go to Sodom at, to look for the, for the 10 people. But it started at 40. Started at 40. I, mean, I just love the way they love the Bible and it's the greatest book, and they swear on it, but it has these things that are like comically stupid. 
and and corrupt. I mean, God is so corrupt in the Bible. I mean, you can bargain, <laughs> you can bargain humans. You know, he does things that are, are so capricious and cruel and you know petty. I mean, he's very Trumpian. Well, you know, I've been I've been walking. I released a series on, started to release it yesterday on YouTube on on the story of Exodus. And it's a 16-part series, 32 hours on wow. of Exodus. Yeah, I had nine people come down, and I've been I've been walking through the biblical corpus. That was actually something I wanted to talk to you today about. I love it. There's like a gradual dawning on Bill <laughs> as Jordan's talking about how much time he spent analyzing the Bible and so on. So good. So then uh, Bill kind of needs to try to thread the needle now between not insulting Jordan, but also maintaining his anti-religion views. So here's a clip of him kind of backpedaling a little bit after this exchange. I did not have any sort of social life at Cornell, but I did have all these intellectual epiphanies from all these professors who you remind me of, who like would introduce these ideas and these, and oh, okay, so I, I knew that story all these years and now I'm really understanding it. It's, I kind of miss that. So, but to be fair, Bill doesn't like do a complete reversal. He does continue to disparage the Bible and Jordan <laughs> kind of fails to read the room a little bit and he go he launches into a long-winded Bible story throughout which Bill is kind of laughing at the most absurd parts of the story and Jordan kind of valiantly continues. Um, but you can tell Jordan's kind of in his like solemn and serious mode and he wants the bible you know he wants the story to come across as like august and dignified so there's this like comical juxtaposition of that with bill's kind of hilarity and and lack of seriousness as he listens to the story so as you listen to this just try to picture jordan's usual environment where he kind of delivers these sermons on the bible and the kind of soberness and seriousness that he normally wants to convey um, and contrast it with Bill's complete mirth and <laughs> laughter here. I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. A Bible tell me story? what you think about a Bible story. This is, this is Jordan Peterson's I love your Bible, Bible story. Stories. Okay, this is a Bible story. So I'm, um, I've been looking at the story of Jonah. Yeah. And this is a story that you'll appreciate. So here's what happens to Jonah. He's just minding his own business. And then... He, the voice of God comes to him and, it's, and the, vo the voice says, you have to go to this city, Nineveh, because everybody in Nineveh is like, they've strayed off the path and I'm thinking about wiping them out, but you could maybe go there and tell them like how foolish they are and they'll straighten up and then I won't have to destroy the city. And, jo and, and Jonah thinks, there's no goddamn way I'm going to do that. First of all, Nineveh is a city of his enemies. Babylonia. It's, 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 it's a city that he's, right. not, he's not allied with. And so he thinks, right. well, you guys can go to hell in a handbasket, and if God wipes you out, that's perfectly fine with me. Right. And sure. then he also thinks, like any wise man would, it's like, I see, this is the task you have for me. It's like, <laughs> there's 150,000 people there. I'm a foreigner. I'm going to go there and tell them how they're misbehaving, <laughs> and that's going to work out well for me. <laughs> so he thinks to hell with that, like any sensible person would. And he doesn't say what he has to say. All right, so I've got a few more clips to finish us off. So here, I mentioned earlier that Jordan Peterson sometimes like misremembers facts in like quite bizarre ways. Like he just gets things wrong and you'll see him trot out the same facts over and over and uh, apparently nobody corrects him. So here's one example of that. I'll let you hear the clip and then afterwards I'll tell you what he got wrong about it. 
there's a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts that the Google engineers wrote. Oh. Yeah, and Google engineers make great psychologists because they're stu too, too stupid to be politically correct. So they just tell you what's actually true and they don't even know that there's something wrong with it. It's like, this is just what happened because they're engineers. Right, you know? they're so, nerds. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so they just think, oh, this is this is what the data shows. You got a problem with that? Like, how would anyone have a problem with that? Because they're engineers, that. right? So that. Okay, so there's five males categories that are hyper-attractive on the pornographic front to women. Vampires, werewolves, pirates, <laughs> surgeons, and billionaires. <laughs> uh, hey, that's right, that's right, man. So, you know, I can't help this. So, in actual fact, neither of the authors of that book were engineers, nor were they employed at Google. So there's two facts that are wrong. And also, in the book, the authors talk about not five categories of male that females are drawn to, but ten. And of the five that he listed, only one of them is actually in that list. So... I guess like the general thrust of what he's saying is fine. You know, there, there are in fact going to be insights that you can glean from women's reading preferences in, in, in romantic novels. But it's just interesting that he got all these details so mangled and I just wonder how that happens. But anyway, maybe that's not super fair. That I mean, that happens to the best of us. But I suppose if you're going to be repeatedly bringing out the same ideas because he, he talks about this constantly um you at least want to get the facts straight right you want to like do your homework <laughs> make sure you're not just repeating inaccuracies all right so a few more bonus clips so this, these are all from bill maher's interview with him and so who for those who don't know bill maher's kind of like very much into the sybaritic or like hedonistic lifestyle it seems he's very into alcohol and women and stuff and so he manages to bring out of jordan peterson a side of him that you might not have seen before so these clips are curiosities i suppose um interesting facets of jordan peterson's life are revealed for example check this clip out no one who's in a long-term relationship is going to say Oh, yeah, 20 years on, and we still, like, attack each other when we walk in the door. It's just, it, come on. That's, how, that's true in my case. You still attack each other? Yeah. Now, it turns out that Jordan Peterson's wisdom extends beyond just the Bible and politics and psychology. Uh, he also has some advice to share on how he achieved the level of marital success that he mentioned in that last clip. 20 years ago, something like that, I bought like 100 pieces of lingerie for Whoa, my wife. Whoa, yeah, 100? Yeah. yeah, a whole bunch, like a boatload, yes. What a baller. Yeah, yeah, it was, and then, and then she wore them. And that took care of the novelty problem, by the way. The novelty, oh really? It helped a lot, well, yes. You can hear Bill's like dubiousness as he listens to that, because Bill's like a very staunch, uh, stalwart bachelor he, he's never never wants to be tied down so he he like can't quite comprehend the possibility of what jordan's saying anyway that was a, a fairly interesting exchange there a side of jordan i'd never seen before which was uh, refreshing i actually i quite like to see that kind of thing from jordan i must say i do have a real soft spot for jordan peterson uh there are a lot of things that are annoying about what he says and he is prone to a kind of resentful attitude and so on sometimes when inveighing against the things he doesn't like but in spite of all that i don't know i find myself uh enjoying hearing what he has to say i suppose one thing is that i find his foibles more like amusing than annoying um but anyway one final clip it will take well look yes. i've known at least 200 people who've been cancelled 
Like, I have a very wide network of cancelled people. Hmm. I wonder, Jordan, if maybe you should start associating with uh, different people. 200. Goodness me. They're going to be a terrible influence on, on Jordan. He's, uh, he should really, uh, yeah, find some new friends, perhaps. But, yeah, on that very serious and academic note, we will wrap things up. Okay, so... To summarize very briefly, we saw a couple of Jordan Peterson's epistemic foibles, notably the use of loose-fitting metaphors and concepts, which, while not technically inaccurate, are not particularly enlightening or illuminating or useful, and so there's a problem, I think, with using them. They can be misleading in various ways. We also saw a couple of Jordan's worldviews. There was his biblical worldview, and we saw that he tries to elevate the notion of biblical truths in order that he can wield biblical narratives as kind of citations, like a scientist cites studies. And another part of Jordan's worldview that we uncovered there was his fixation on this notion of a battle between parasites and hosts. And we saw how totalizing that worldview was for Jordan. He seems to apply it to so many things. So hopefully there were some useful insights, not only into the idiosyncrasies of Jordan Peterson, but also some salutary lessons that can be applied beyond just the man himself. But anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate it. And I'll see you in the next episode where I'll be covering Russell Brand, I believe. Okay, so see you later. <laughs>